We're focusing on this parable, uh, the parable of a forgiving uh, king and an unforgiving servant. And as is pretty common with a lot of the parables, they are painting a picture for us of the kingdom of God, or uh, as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. It is the same thing. Uh, The question is, what is the kingdom of heaven like? What is the kingdom like? Uh, And Jesus answers that question. He says the kingdom is like, or the kingdom can, can be compared to a king. And so in verse uh, 23, Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And I think if we pause at the word king, uh, it actually indicates for us something really quite helpful. Uh, The kingdom is in the image of the king. And I'm not just being cute by, you know, stopping a sentence where it's convenient for me to make a point. Uh, this, is actually, uh, this is actually a really important point in understanding almost everything that is said about the kingdom of God. Probably the most important lesson we can learn from our examination of the kingdom of God is that it is primarily a study of the king, his nature, uh, rather than a study of politics or society or even humanity. The kingdom is about the king. Verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, etc. I was once sitting in a talk uh, uh, when I was in university days about the kingdom of God and the man giving the talk asked us, and I'm going to ask you this, uh, what two things makes up a kingdom? What are two things? Can anyone say one thing uh, that belongs in a kingdom that sort of a kingdom must have? A king. Someone said a king. Excellent. Can anyone tell me the other thing? If there's just two, what's the other thing? There's a king and a, a dominion, subjects. You know what I said? Can anyone guess what I said? Dom. There's a king and a dom. And I thought I was being funny. Um, but, uh, and, and, and I, was, um, I was told that that's not funny uh, and not accurate. And that what you have is, yes, if someone said dominion, other people said uh, subjects or a place. There's a realm. Uh, there's a realm that the king uh, is over. I've come to realise that actually I wasn't, I wasn't wrong when I said dom. It's just that short is, dom is short for dominion or the domain, uh, the realm that the king uh, is over. And this is what makes a king a kingdom. But here's the thing that is perhaps just a little bit confusing for us. In English, uh, how do we define the word kingdom? What's the first thing we think of? And I would suggest that the first thing we think of with kingdom is the dom rather than the king. So uh, when I googled kingdom, uh, d- uh, kingdom definition, it came up with this. It is a country, a state or a territory ruled by a king. Uh, So do you notice how that definition focuses mainly on the realm? Uh, It's a country, a state or a territory ruled by a king or queen. But the king or queen is just the thing that makes it a kingdom rather than some other kind of dom. Uh, It's mainly about the domain, but not uh, in the way Jesus speaks about it and not, in fact, in the language that Jesus spoke in. Uh, A study of the original languages, the Greek that Matthew wrote this account in uh, and the Aramaic that Jesus probably spoke in, um, bears this out, that the emphasis of the kingdom in the languages uh, that were first used, uh, the emphasis was on the king of the kingdom rather than the space or the people that he ruled over. 
But of course, language is a little fluid depending on context. And I don't think it's a bad translation for us to have the word kingdom. What else are you going to say? The, the kingness of heaven or something? Um, so kingdom is, is, is a perfectly appropriate word. We just need to read our context. Uh, and at times when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he is talking about an area uh, or his subjects, the people. Uh, but he is never not inviting us to consider the nature of the king himself. He's always painting a picture of who the king is. And this is going to be important, obviously, not just as we, you know, ask this intellectual question, oh, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? What does it all mean? Uh, okay, we need to think about the king. But actually, in all of life, uh, let's not forget the most important thing is the nature of God, uh, that we should be focusing on him, worshipping him, not just trying to answer questions, uh, but that he must always be the centre of our understanding. Uh, and so the main thing is that the kingdom uh, is, uh, it, what is the kingdom like? The kingdom is in the image of the king. Uh, and we'll say this, the kingdom is in the image of the king who forgives astronomically. I mean, that's the picture, isn't it, in, uh, in the story that we read. There is a king uh, whose subject has racked up an astronomical debt. Uh, and he forgives him. I'm going to ask you another question. How far, how far is the sun from the earth? Now, if you know this question, the answer to this question, uh, then the question's not for you. Um, this is for the person who doesn't really know, but is going to have a wild guess. So is the sun, A, 150 million kilometres from the earth, B, twice as far as that, 300 million kilometres from the Earth, or C, 600 million kilometres from the Earth? Does anyone want to have a guess? Who reckons A, 150 million kilometres from the Earth? Who reckons B, 300 million, that's twice as many, 300 million kilometres from the Earth? Right, who reckons C, twice as many again, 600 million kilometres from the Earth? Okay, we got our first hands. Uh, and maybe the reason no one else put their hands up is because you all knew and I said this question wasn't for you, if you know the answer. Well, the answer is actually, it's the small one. It's 150 million kilometres. I mean, that's not small, is it? But the rest of you, you were, what, 450 million kilometres wrong. But what is 450 million kilometres? I mean, it is astronomical. It's so far that it's meaningless. And, it, and it's like that in the picture of the, the sort of debt that this subject has racked up against the king in the story that Jesus tells. He says uh, in verse uh, 24, or 23 and 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Uh, and my Bible has a little note that says a talent is 20 years minimum wage. One talent. Uh, and so if I go off a single basic pension, which is probably less than a labourer's wage, uh, if I go off a single basic pension and times that by 20 years and then times that by 10,000 for the number of talents, it's a touch over $5 billion. How does a pensioner rack up $5 billion debt? Uh, as, sorry, I said it's a touch over $5 billion. It's actually $5.2 billion. Uh, that touch is $200 million, uh, the, the, that, that point two in the 5.2. But, I mean, $200 million. I can't even comprehend that, let alone $5.2 
billion dollars. And so people sometimes, uh, here's a thought, people sometimes get hung up on the punishment of hell. The punishment of hell being described uh, in some instances as something like eternal torment. How can all sin be a single, uh, by a single person be worthy of infinite punishment? Well, one of the arguments to justify this is to be reminded uh, that disobedience against an infinite and holy God is an infinite crime. I'm going to go on record and say, to be honest, I'm not totally in love with that argument and I can't quite put my finger on why and I would love the opportunity to sort of chew that over with someone. But let me say this, uh, which I think is a better point, okay? How can can a single, uh, how can a sin committed by a person be worthy of infinite punishment? Well, you could say uh, what we've already said, well, sin against an infinite God is is of infinite um, uh, wickedness. But here I think is a better point. Eternal torment is more than balanced by God's infinite grace. His forgiveness knows no limits. Sure, you know, in the word picture here of the parable, we've got a limit. Um, It's 20, uh, what is it, 10,000 talents. But that's so astronomical as to be almost meaningless. The point is actually that it's limitless. It's boundless. It's It's an impossible limit that you could never reach. And what is the key that unlocks the king's limitless grace? This is the nature of the kingdom that, uh, that Jesus came to establish. What's the key that unlocks the king's limitless grace? Let's have a look at what actually happens in verses 26 and 27. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Why did he release him and forgive the debt? Is it the servant's imploring of verse 26, the servant's pleading? You know, he just asked, and so therefore we need to just ask. I mean, he's, he's kind of asking for the wrong thing when you actually read the words. I'm not sure that it's the asking uh, that unlocks the king's generosity. Well, is it the servant's heart? Is it that the king can see into the servant's heart? Uh, he, he's saying, for example, in, in, in his pleading, he says, well, I will, I will pay you everything in return. And so perhaps the, the king sees into his heart and says, oh, you know, he wants to try, and so I'll reward him in that respect. The problem is that we learn as we read on that his heart is anything but pure. And so I don't think it's that. And I think the answer is, appears in verse 27, The key exists in the king himself. It is the king's pity that unlocks this limitless forgiveness. It's nothing in the man himself or what he's done or what clever things he says or what speech he makes or even a single prayer. But the the key to unlock infinite grace uh, is not in your hands at all. It's in God's. Uh, Psalm 51 is a great psalm uh, to read if you're feeling burdened by guilt. It's a psalm of repentance. It's the one that was written by King David after he was found out having committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, And it says uh, this in the opening verses. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing mercy. Because, of course, all David has to bring at the table at that point is his own sin. 
It is God. Uh, in as much, I would say, in as much as uh, the master's response has anything at all to do uh, with the servant, uh, I would say uh, that what good the servant brings to the table is actually harder to pin down than uh, anything you can find in his words uh, or, uh, or his understanding or his heart. But if I could define accurately the one thing that the servant does right, I would say it's something like this. He throws himself on the king's mercy. He has abandoned all hope because his situation, he can see, is hopeless. He's abandoned all hope and he just flings himself. And you can say whatever at that point. He just flings himself at the mercy of the king to do the king's own will. And the king's obvious will is to forgive. Well, friends, what a comfort. That whatever it is that might plague your conscience or whatever mistakes you have made, God at least stands ready to forgive your debt and mop up your wrongs. So the kingdom is in the image of a king who forgives astronomically. But there's something that follows, and we're going to talk a little about this. The kingdom is in the image of a king who demands that you forgive. And this is the final point. The kingdom is in the image of a king who demands that you forgive. There is an obligation laid on the subjects of his kingdom. If the kingdom is in the image of the king who forgives, then forgiveness must be the flavour of the kingdom. Therefore, the whole kingdom order should be coloured with forgiveness. And what we learn almost surprisingly as we read the story is that in God's eyes, this does not lead to a fluffy land of no consequence and just sweet recklessness because everything's fair game, everyone, everything cops a free pass. This flavour of forgiveness comes with a heavy obligation on all that would enter God's kingdom to be people who forgive in much the same astronomical way that the king himself forgives. We are to be in his image, reflecting his own nature. And so from verse 28 onwards, uh, we have this forgiven man, uh, uh, a man whose debt has been uh, literally forgiven. Uh, His debt has been uh, cancelled. And he goes out from having been forgiven and he finds a, a, a fellow servant... Uh, who owes him a hundred denarii. Uh, And again, my Bible has a little note down the bottom that says a single denarii is something like a day's wages. So a hundred is still a lot, right? Like like in real terms, I'm going to say, you know, again, I'm doing rough stuff, but something like $7,000. And I don't know many people for whom $7,000 isn't still a lot of money. It's still going to hurt to cancel a debt like that. It's a lot of money in almost anyone's language. And so even for this servant, something costly is being asked of him. And he will not do it. And he doesn't get a free pass just because forgiveness is hard. Uh, Because it would have been hard. He must be one who forgives. And all of this comes into the context too. Remember the very first, uh, the the way Jesus... Uh, springs into this story it's when Peter says to him in verse 21 Peter came up and said Lord how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him and Peter even offers a suggestion 
seven times. Man, doesn't seven sound like a lot? I reckon seven sounds something like $7,000. You know, one of those, a pretty painful sum. Uh, Peter's offering that, you know, I'd be willing to, to go a fair way in forgiveness. Do other people think seven times for, you know, for a repeat offence still sounds like a lot? And Jesus does something, even for Peter, astronomical. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And again, maybe your Bible's like mine, it's got a note uh, that says uh, down the bottom, uh, sorry, uh, that says uh, that that may have been translated 77 times, or it may even be translated 70 times seven times. But again, you know, we're heading up into the the millions of kilometres territory again. What's the difference between forgiving someone 77 times and 70 times seven times? Numerically, the difference is huge, but in practice, well, even going to seven is big. Going to 77 feels impossible. Going to 70 times seven, I haven't, I haven't done the maths on my calculator. Someone here could do it. But it's astronomical forgiveness is offered to us And astronomical forgiveness is not only expected from us, but demanded of us. There's a question, I don't know if it's a theoretical question, I've heard it asked in church circles a number of times. The question goes something like this, does someone have to ask for forgiveness to be forgiven? So for example, if someone sins against you, can you only actually forgive them if they ask for forgiveness? And otherwise, you know, it's like it's forgiveness pending or something. Um, have, have other people heard that question? Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I think this comes from a reasonably good place uh, in that uh, I think it comes from the fact that although God's gift of forgiveness is free and astronomical and abundant, not all are saved. Not all receive his forgiveness. But I'm concerned that oftentimes, uh, or or potentially when people ask this question, well, you know, does someone need to ask to actually be forgiven or for for forgiveness to even happen? My concern is that it sounds like people trying to put limits on forgiveness. Well, I can't forgive that person because they haven't asked for it. I can't give them what they haven't asked for because God doesn't forgive people who uh, don't repent and turn to him. I don't like it. I don't like that. I think it's semantics, I think it's fiddling with the words, I think it's trying to output limits on something that is clearly meant to be limitless. And and I think it's fair to say, uh, to acknowledge that uh, when it comes to the dynamic of forgiveness, there's two experiences of forgiveness. Uh, There's the forgiver and the forgivee. The one who uh, is offering forgiveness and the one who requires forgiveness because they've done something wrong. And... uh, and, and it is fair to say, I think, that um, someone who requires forgiveness cannot experience the whole fullness of what that experience means uh, without having asked for it, uh, without even wanting it in the first place, without acknowledging their need for it. So on that level, yeah, maybe forgiveness is a thing that cannot exist unless someone has asked for it or, or decided that they need it. But... Forgiveness doesn't only exist in the realm of the person who requires forgiveness. Forgiveness exists in the realm of the person who must give it, who must offer it. And you notice at the end here, Jesus says, uh, the very final verse of chapter 18, my heavenly Father will do, uh, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And, and he's talking there about the experience of the forgiver. 
The forgiver has a duty to forgive, to offer the grace of forgiveness from their heart, whether the person who needs it from you wants it or thinks they need it or not. It is our duty to be a people who forgive, who stand ready to forgive. Humanly speaking, of course, uh, I think probably we all realise this too. Humanly speaking, uh, the, the gift of forgiveness doesn't only exist for the person who requires the forgiveness. To give forgiveness, to forgive, is in itself a gift uh, because the alternative is to bear a grudge. Uh, The alternative is to hang on and to potentially poison yourself with bitterness. So we must be people who stand ready to forgive, who actually forgive from our hearts. We see this all through Jesus' teaching. We pray it every single Sunday. Father, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We forgive others uh, for two reasons. We forgive others because we've been forgiven. That's the order it occurs in the parable. Uh, The man is forgiven and then he doesn't go on to show forgiveness and, and he loses his forgiveness. Uh, But also, the way Jesus phrases it more often, when he actually teaches on forgiveness and the need uh, for it, more often he doesn't say, well, forgiveness is a thing you offer in gratitude for the forgiveness you've received, but forgiveness is something that you must offer before you're even eligible to receive forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins, in other words, in direct measure to the amount of forgiveness that we offer others. Uh, And he says, uh, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. We must be people uh, who, if we want to enter a kingdom with a flavour of forgiveness, we must be people who forgive, who not just uh, take it for granted and enjoy the benefits of forgiveness, uh, but who also uh, do the hard yards of offering it to others. Uh, I'll say this just in closing. In In my preparation for this series uh, and this is coming back to this initial statement the kingdom of uh the kingdom is in the image of the king what is the kingdom of heaven like the kingdom of heaven is like a king uh, we, we must uh look first to the king to understand the flavor of his kingdom in my preparation i stumbled on this quote which i think is helpful it says this unfortunately much of the contemporary talk about the kingdom paints a picture of a kingdom with a vacant throne a picture of a kingdom with a vacant throne. And the point that the author was making there is that, you know, we talk about kingdom work as we talk about, you know, the stuff that a church should be getting around doing without actually thinking about uh, the king. Who, who is the king like? What is he like? And it, regardless of whether the point in the article were, was a brilliant point, brilliantly made or not, I just find that a really helpful image to picture the throne, to be reminded that as we uh, sort of explore the kingdom of God and what it means and what Jesus meant by it and its implications, let's never forget the king. Uh, Let's not just focus on the dom, let's remember the king. Uh, The king himself is relevant. It is his nature that sets the tone for the kingdom beneath him. Uh, And I'll add just this uh, in closing, the other danger of a vacant throne isn't that we will forget that there is a king who has a particular nature, the other danger of a vacant throne, is that we might fill the throne ourselves with the wrong thing. 
I can think of two things that might appeal to us to fill such a throne with. Uh, frequently, what we do is we fill that throne uh, with ourselves. Uh, we put ourselves on the throne. We choose uh, our own adventure. We choose uh, our own desires. But the other possibility is that we could fill that throne with a version of God, but it's not God himself. It's a version of God in our image. Uh, the kind of God that we like once we exercise our judgment and take out the bits that we don't like. It is our duty as we explore what the kingdom of heaven means uh, and what its implications are in our lives and in our world to explore first and always uh, the nature of the king, uh, particularly the nature of the king uh, as it is revealed to us by the king himself. This is not our imagination at work here. Uh, We are submitting always to the word of God uh, and the things he's shown us to be true about him. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this really clear picture that's been offered to us by Jesus of what the kingdom of heaven is like. We've spent a lot of time thinking about what it's not. Uh, And today we get a really clear statement. The kingdom of heaven is like a king. It's in the image of a king. It's the image of you. And what do we learn about you today? We learn that among everything else, you are a God of astronomical grace. You are a God uh, who uh, forgives us all things. We cannot rack up a debt that you are not willing to forgive. Father, we pray uh, that in light of who you are, we might submit to that entirely, not just to enjoy the privileges of being forgiven, like the crummy servant in the story, but we would be people uh, who desire uh, to actually inhabit your greatness, uh, desire to do the great things that you do uh, and offer forgiveness. Recognising that for us it will come uh, at a cost, it's not easy to extend grace and of course we still need to employ wisdom. Uh, But you do require, you require of us to be gracious people. Father, it occurs to us that uh, probably nearly all of us right now need to repent ourselves of unforgiveness in our hearts. We pray that you will help us uh, to do the work before you and before others uh, of forgiving the sins that have been committed against us, for forgiving and praying for and loving our enemies. Uh, We pray that you will help us uh, to move on Uh, from past grudges and hurts uh, and help us to walk in the freedom that you offer that comes from forgiveness. And Father, we thank you that in all of this that the almighty price has actually been paid. As much as forgiveness is costly, it's a a thing that you have already purchased uh, with the, uh, the astronomical, the limitless price of your own son. We pray that you will help us to appreciate uh, and treasure that gift uh, and to share uh, that gift with others. Amen.